Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello, I'm David Kermode. Welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM, episode 87, and it's the first of two special editions devoted to Bordeaux. This week, our focus is on its famous world-conquering red wines made to a modern style. We'll hear from a dynamic new generation winemaker, and I shall take on the challenge of blending my own wine to be assessed by an expert, a winemaker. Plus, later on, a selection of Bordeaux medal winners from the IWSC in 2022. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Bordeaux is the world's most celebrated wine region, rich in history and steeped in tradition. 85% of its output is red wine, and much is now being made of its modern style, somewhat lighter and fresher than before. So for the first of our special editions, we're focused on red. Bordeaux's winning blends have been replicated all over the world, yet it retains a je ne sais quoi as a region. So later on, I shall be making my own red blend, seeking the assessment of a leading winemaker who'll critique my efforts. But first, let's hear from one of the new generation of Bordelais. Quentin Vidal is the owner of Chateau Laurent in Franc Côte de Bordeaux. Uh, Quentin, uh, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thank you very much, David. Happy to be here. Uh, happy to have you. First, before we talk about uh, the wines, just introduce us to Chateau Laurent, the place. Yes, of course. Chateau Laurent is a 10 hectares estate uh, located in a franc called the Bordeaux Appellation. So we are kind of a very east uh, in the Bordeaux Appellation, not too far from Dordogne. You may be familiar with the Dordogne region. So it's a family winery. I live on the estate with my wife and my kids. And we have many red grape variety. Yeah, okay. Well, um, Franck, the appellation, um, I must confess, was a new one for me. Um, I'm familiar with the, the Côte de Bordeaux, obviously, and the uh, amazing value, actually, that comes out of that um, that appellation. But tell us a little bit more about Franck's itself. You mentioned it's in the east. Uh, tell us a bit more. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Franck, so basically, it's the continuation of Saint-Emilion and Castillon. So we, we have Castillon on the south, and Saint-Emilion on the west. So we are very close to Lussac Saint-Emilion, Puisseguin Saint-Emilion, and Montaigne Saint-Emilion, which are the satellites uh, of Saint-Emilion Appellation. Uh, so it's very the continuity, the continuation of the actual uh, terroir. So we have a lot of clay, um, a lot of limestone, uh, mainly a very hilly area. We have even more hill, I would say, than uh, Saint-Emilion. Very much east, like I mentioned, so we are nearly continental, I would say. I mean, we are still maritime, obviously, because we are 
close to the ocean, but we have a much warmer, I think, um, summer and much cooler winter compared to the west side of Bordeaux, such as the Medoc. It's very small as well, as you mentioned. Uh, as you said, it's not really well known, which is true. Uh, it's 350 hectares, actually. So it's very tiny compared to oh, other Appalachians. I see. Well, that makes me feel a bit better for not having <laughs> known about it. Um, so it's reasonable to assume then that um, in quality terms with that terroir, you're making wines that are um, very similar to the more expensive wines of uh, Saint-Emilion, for example. Yeah, I think, I mean, many properties are sharing a very similar terroir uh, relying really on the soil, really. So I think the main difference, and obviously we don't have the same um, money going into the winemaking process, I guess, compared to Saint-Emilion or Pomerol. And of course, Saint-Emilion and Pomerol have some unique terroirs that we don't have as well, clearly. But we are very close to it. And uh, for a very long time, actually, it was considered as a whole region. It wasn't really that divided. So France uh, vines were actually making Saint-Emilion wine for a very long time. It's only, I think, from 1960 or 1970 that the appellation system arrived and uh, classified Franc as a unique region as well. And the grape varieties that you are growing, uh, we tend to think in shorthand terms of you know, left bank Cabernet Sauvignon, right bank Merlot. I know it's more complicated than that. What are you growing there? What uh, vines do you have? So I do have Merlot, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon as well, which are two of the main grapes I'm growing. And I also have Cabernet Franc and Malbec. So we have four different grapes at the moment. Uh, I'm actually planting white as well. So a little bit of Semillon we'll be planting next year. I really like Semillon. The particularity actually of Franc as well is to be able to produce three different types of, um, of wine with the Franc Côte de Bordeaux appellation. We can do dry white, sweet white, and also red wine, which is quite rare in Bordeaux because most of the appellation in Bordeaux, you can really make only one type of wine. So we're actually quite flexible in Franc. Uh, interesting. Um, what's also interesting is that you are in the process of converting to organic. Um, what made you and your team uh, want to do that? I think it was uh, again, it became obvious. I, I would like to say from my generation, without uh, any offense to the older generation of uh, winemaking uh, people around. Uh, but we have much more knowledge nowadays of uh, what's going on regarding farming and agriculture use, uses, let's say. Uh, so to us, uh, it was clearly that if we were going to make wine here, it was going to be organic and uh, not, any, not, any, not any other way. Sorry. I understand, of course, that some people, it's not as easy for them to understand. But for us, we, we really wanted to get uh, organic as soon as possible. Do you notice the difference in the wines, do you think, with organic uh, berries? Then you do. Uh, it's not really about the actual product that you're going to use or not use. It's more the attention to details, how you're going to actually uh, follow the cycle of the vines. You, in order to grow organic wines, organic vines, sorry, you need to pay much more attention to your vines, uh, pay much more attention to the signs that can indi- indicate if your vine is doing well or not well, how you can help it. Uh, obviously, if you're not organic, it's a bit easier because you can have you have access to easier tools basically to fix it. Let's say if you want to fix your vines. While if you're organic, it takes a bit longer. So the better state your vine is, the easiest it is to make good quality grapes. And then technically, it's easier to make good quality wine if you have good grapes. Yeah, and it used to be said that Bordeaux um, was a very difficult place 
um, because of that uh, maritime influence, especially um, to grow organic grapes. Um, is, is that um, really the case? Is that correct? Or is it something that just presents a challenge that you are prepared to take on? I think it is correct. Uh, it's, there's definitely easier places to make uh, organic wines, uh, such as obviously the south of France, if we're talking uh, French, French wines, uh, where you have much less rain, much less humidity, uh, which means that you have less chances to get uh, fungus, clearly. So we're talking odium, uh, black rot, mildew, which are the three big disease that you could get in your vines. In Bordeaux, we get them every year. It doesn't matter if it's very dry, you still have a possibility of getting it because it's everywhere, because we have a very high degree of humidity. In the south of France, there's not much humidity, a lot of dry winds, so basically much easier to make uh, organic wine. However, it's not because it's easier to make it uh, down south that you cannot do it in Bordeaux. Some people have been organic for a very long time in Bordeaux. Uh, I think it's just about practices and adaptation as well. You need to adapt to your own climate. Yeah, tell me how you're doing that then. How are you adapting? Uh, well, adapt. I guess it's a bit challenging nowadays because of the climate change, if I want to bring that subject on the table, but... Uh, because every single year is going to be different. We can even see just from the last two years, for instance, uh, which are totally opposite. In 2021, we got so much rain. Like I think it was the wettest year ever in a long time in the region. Um, and this year, it's actually the opposite. It was the driest year ever in the region. That's clearly the sign of the adaptation. You have to, every year, you have to see how your vines are doing and Follow as much as you can the weather forecast. Plan your spraying and your pulverization. If we're talking uh, hands-on work, obviously, like uh, on your vineyards, and uh, to be able to anticipate as much as you can what can happen to your vines. This year, obviously, was very easy because we barely got any rain. I spray the vines six times, which is very much nothing. Uh, last year, uh, it was about twelve or thirteen times, maybe, I had to I had to spray the vines. So every year is different and it's really about adaptation more than ever with the climate change. Yeah, I mean, this is something that you are really noticing, is it? Climate change, in the time that you have been involved in making wine, uh, you've really seen um, the impact of climate change uh, hands-on, have you? Yeah, of course, absolutely. And often, uh, on an everyday kind of, uh, every year, let's say, every year scale, one of the easy uh, things that you can notice is the fact of replanting. If, uh, like any farming, you need to replant uh, your plants in order to get a crop. Obviously, they harvest every year, and sometimes you have vines that are dying, so you need to replace them. When we replace vines, we put younger vines, which are much more sensitive to drought or to uh, illnesses, just uh, mildew, for instance. So that uh, climate change would have a big impact on that, and it's much harder to keep uh, up to date with the new plant that you just planted. You need to be very cautious, and it's bringing even more attention and uh, keeping an eye on your new plant to make sure they have enough water to survive uh, or if they don't then they didn't get infected by too much mildew for instance for them to survive as well that's one of the aspects anyway of course this year uh, for instance droughts uh, and i think it's probably going to be one of the big issue uh, for the next years to come uh, and there are many ways to fight that as well uh, this year for instance i didn't trim some of my vines it was kind of a try obviously because i've never done that before Every year, normally, you trim the top of your vines in order to uh, push the growth towards the grapes and not the actual uh, green vegetative area of the vines. Uh, but this year, it was so hot that I thought it would be good to actually 
give a bit more power to the to the leaves instead of the grapes to have less concentration. And uh, actually, it worked out really well because I compared two different plots. So one plot where I did the trimming, uh, one of the plots where I didn't trim. It was both Malbec, and I had a difference of 0.5 degree of alcohol at the end of the year, which is huge. Because this year, uh, the challenge was to uh, to balance the alcohol level with the acidity, basically. So uh, the less alcohol you had, the better chance to save acidity you had. Uh, without trimming, I saved uh, acidity, and I had less uh, worried about a higher degree of alcohol, basically. Yeah, so you're adapting to the climate. You're also making the wines that, that people want these days, which is, you know, of course, a exactly. lower alcohol, isn't it? Exactly, that's a good point as well. Uh, as you, like you said, people tend to avoid very high alcohol degrees. I think people are going more of a healthy lifestyle, I suppose. So they don't want as much degrees in their bottle. It's kind of the opposite of what climate change is doing with the heat. Indeed. Well, Bordeaux has um, an incredibly strong record on sustainability uh, in terms of the take-up for HVE, the uh, sustainability accreditation. In fact, I was talking to Stephen Brook, the acclaimed uh, Bordeaux expert, about his, his new book, and he was telling us that he hasn't even listed uh, the wineries that have that status because it's it's kind of almost pointless because so many people have adopted it that it's you don't even need to make a note of it now, um, which is a great thing for, for Bordeaux. Uh, tell us what that HVE um, accreditation means that you have to do. What do you have to do to earn that status? So what you have to do is basically uh, do a lot of management. So record all aspects of uh, changes and all um, things you're going to do in your winery, but also outside the winery. It can be linked to the social aspects, uh, moral aspect, technical aspect, uh, economical, of course, but obviously it's linked a lot about uh, what you're going to do in your vines. So for instance, uh, how much product you use in a specific area and why, for what reason. It basically makes you think and take a step back from um, growing vines and it may make you think about what, why do you do it and how you could do it better maybe and how to improve it. So I think it's really link, uh, it's really similar to ISO certification uh, to that stage. I think uh, ISO is kind of the same thing. You kind of always aim to do better management using less to do better. And I think that's what HVE really helps some farmers really, or like me as well, to, to help how to run the winery more effic- efficiently, I would say. Yeah, you must have to think about the use of yeah, water a lot. Uh, in the winery and in the vineyards now, I, I guess, especially with the uh, climate change factors at play as well. Water is a big thing, clearly. Actually, we did some work last year uh, on our winery uh, to uh, cap all the rainfall uh, that we get, basically, from the roof. And we have a big water tank underneath the winery that we can use for all the spreading, all the cleaning that we do outside in order to save water. And that's, that's clearly linked to HV as well, basically. It's Looking from a outside perspective, what you're using, how much you're using of it, and how you could save it, basically. How you, how you could do the same with less. Another thing you do that feels like a kind of thoroughly modern thing to do, I suppose, is uh, you make your wines vegan certified, uh, which means for those listening, wondering, you know, where the animal products come into a wine. Of course, this is to do with fining the the, the wine in terms of uh, clarification and fining. And you could use animal products or byproducts, but you choose not to. Why is that? Well, in 
in fairness, it's a lot linked to the commercial aspect because obviously now it's uh, the vegan movement, if you like to call it, because I guess it's, uh, I mean, it's not only a trend, obviously there is a, a lot of <laughs> vegan vegetarians and a lot of interest, let's say, uh, behind that, which is great, I think, because uh, we need more transparency. And in winery, as you said, we actually use uh, for a very long time uh, protein-based fining uh, products, such as uh, pork-based uh, it's often the gelatin that you find in the mm -hmm. bone, basically, uh, that often used for fining. Also, I mean, linked to fish as well, beef. Uh, you can use basically many byproducts from animals. But nowadays, with technology as well, there's a lot of products that you can uh, that can be replaced uh, instead of the animal one. So bentonite, for instance, is a typical uh, fining agent that you would use, which is a, it's just it's a stone kind of thing, bentonite. We see the pea protein, it's not only good to eat the pea protein, it has a lot of protein, it's great for the body, but it's also great as a fining agent. So actually, uh, most, I mean, all my reds, most of them anyway, are fine with uh, pea protein. And I think it's uh, great uh, to avoid, if we can, uh, to add any animal parts into the wine. I'm not vegan myself, but I would prefer to drink a vegan wine if I know that there is no animal product into the actual wine. Because isn't it wine supposed just isn't it wine just supposed to be fermented grape juice when you think about it? It's just supposed to be natural, and you don't really want uh, animal part in it. Yeah, no, uh, it I, I it always amazes uh, people who aren't involved in winemaking that there could be an animal byproduct anywhere near it. So, so you're absolutely yeah. right. It, it is it is just uh, tapping into something that uh, that is increasingly. Uh, on on people's minds, and it's a commercial consideration. It helps you sell your wine. So Bordeaux, as a wine region, is, is steeped in history and tradition. I mean, it is without doubt the most famous fine wine region in the world. Do you find it a dynamic and exciting place to make wine? Yes, very very much so. Uh, and I guess that's where I'm happy to be here as well because um, I love the terroir, the region, the history behind it. There is so much going on between uh, the different uh, people working in the wine industry. Because it's not only, uh, as you said, Bordeaux is really well known for the very fine wine, probably some of the best wine in the world. We have a very big reputation. and uh, But we are also a lot of people in the Bordeaux wine region. So it's uh, it's a lot... It's a lot of challenge, but it's also a lot of fun to interact with all these people and to try to bring together Bordeaux uh, as a as a, as a wine region, but also as a unique identity each of the region. Like uh, me, for instance, or us. I mean, uh, from the Franco de Bordeaux appellation, we are one of the appellation from the Bordeaux region, and uh, we love to be able to interact with the Côte de Bordeaux, the other neighbors such as Castillon. Uh, Bourg, Blaye, of course, all the classic uh, Côte de Bordeaux region appellations. To have so many neighbors and be able to exchange uh, information to help each other on the cells as well, uh, I think it's great to be in a really dynamic environment, like you said. I think it's very dynamic, Bordeaux. Yeah, great. Um, I mean, people still tend to think, I think over here at least, about some of those very good, very expensive wines. You know, you're not far from Pomerol. You're not far from Saint-Emilion. That's just the, the right bank. Um, of course, we've got the left mm -hmm. bank to think about as well. But uh, we get these great names and these very high prices that go with those great names. How would you encourage people to think more about a wider range of of Bordeaux wines. What would you say to them to encourage them to experiment? I think try something new every day. Let's say I know it's uh, sometimes can be challenging when you are going to a dinner party uh, and you want to bring a nice bottle of wines. Obviously, the the easy choice is going to be to pick a Pomerol or Saint Emilion because 
you know that uh, the person you give the bottle to is going to be impressed. But on the other hand, if you try something at uh, probably a better value and that you don't necessarily know, that's how you can uh, come up to very good surprises as well. And I think all the Côte de Bordeaux, all the Entre-de-Mer, for instance, and all the Grave and Pessac Léonion appellations uh, will offer probably a better uh, price quality ratio, I think. I have so much potential and so much to show. So I think uh, I would invite people to, to try on all this area. Uh, we are, uh, yeah, we are area where a lot is happening at the moment as well. Yeah, I quite agree. Some of my happiest times have been spent in the uh, Maison du Vin in Blaye, uh, just ch- choosing wines that I, I didn't even know at the time, but I've just, just because the prices were so uh, incredibly compelling and I was never disappointed with the wines uh, when I, I got them back home uh, uh, in the UK uh, either. Um, in the time that you've worked with wine, how have the wines of Bordeaux changed, do you think? They changed a lot, I would say. <laughs> but I think because, uh, like any wine region, I don't think it's necessarily linked to Bordeaux. Uh, it's more uh, linked to our society, I suppose, and the way we like, the, the way we taste and what we like. Because, of course, uh, you even if you make the best wine from your point of view, for instance, myself, if I make uh, the best wine and I think it is the best wine on the planet, you still need to sell it. So you need someone else to drink it. So you do need to follow the market and the trends. And uh, Bordeaux has been very good to adapting to it as well. Over the years, Bordeaux have changed a lot and have evolved a lot. And even every year, I think there's new uh, wines and new surprises to come up to. Um, yeah, I think it, it changes a lot compared to the old days, clearly. There's a greater emphasis on freshness, I think, as well, isn't there? Yes, exactly. If we talk more about um, wine tasting itself, obviously, a long time ago, we, I think Bordeaux was uh, using a lot of oak and using oak as a, oak barrels, for instance, as a typical uh, vessel to hold the wine, to bring a bit more aromatic, of course, and to soften the tannins and to bring a bit more structure as well. Nowadays, uh, I think Bordeaux is really focusing on uh, more the grape variety and the terroir mix, meaning that you really want to reveal what each grape variety can do on each terroir. And that's where Bordeaux has a lot of potential because uh, it's a pretty big region with a very diverse and very unique uh, area, such as uh, Franco de Bordeaux that not many people know. Uh, and if you really show uh, specific grapes on this specific type of terroir it's just totally changed compared to what we used to do and uh, often it's um, it's towards the fruitiness as uh, a softness i suppose um something a bit more joyful let's say velvety compared to something more structured mm, which brings me neatly to your choice of fermenting vessels because they're less conventional uh, than than other uh, wineries uh, you've got um some uh, concrete um, and you've got Amphora as well. Tell us why you're using those different vessels. I think, like uh, yeah, like I just said, I think uh, those vessels are ideal to actually uh, reveal uh, the potential of the terroir without um, hiding too much the true potential of it. They are both neutral regarding the aromatic aspects, which means that uh, concrete and uh, oh, uh, and sorry and amphoras. Uh, most of them for anyway, the one I have, are neutral regarding the aromatic, so they're not going to bring any um, any other aromatic that the actual wine itself. So they won't be hiding any fruits, any spices, any complexity that you could get from your wine. And I think that's why I really focus on those. They are perfect to reveal the potential of a terroir. Do you have a 
winemaking philosophy that you follow uh, in making your wines? It's a tough question, but uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose what I try to do is more adapt. I think as I mentioned adaptation a few times already, but uh, adaptation is key and also uh, it's it's also key to wine making, I think. So you really need to adapt to what you have. So basically at the end of the year, in September, October, uh, when you harvest, what you have uh, brought back to the winery to in order to make the wine, you have to adapt what you're going to make. I think... Back in the days, it was on the trend as well. Uh, we used to always make the same style, I think. Not only Bordeaux, uh, wine in general, uh, over France or even other wine-producing countries. They tend to make a specific style reg- um, linked to the region. Nowadays, first of all, it's more challenging to make it because uh, every single year is different. And I think people are not necessarily looking for that anymore. I think people are much prefer to have something new, something more interesting, something that's going to change every year. And that's why I think adaptations comes in nicely because you need to adapt and uh, every year, depending on what you are getting in your vines, in your in, in your vineyards, you're going to end up with something different in your tanks. Uh, meanings, it's going to be uh, even more different year to year uh, and on and on. And uh, I think that's kind of my philosophy. Try not to mess too much with the, the what you have in your vineyards, basically. Sounds like a good philosophy to me. You make two wines currently, but your website says you have other wines in the pipeline. So tell us about what you do make and perhaps what you're planning to make as well. Uh, so we do, yeah, as you said, you, we, we produce two wines at the moment, uh, wine, wine focusing on the concrete aspects. So we only age in uh, concrete tanks. So it's going to be mainly fruit driven, um, a bit more rich, but on the rich, fruity and riper side to the fruit. And we do a second wine, which is a little bit of oak and a little bit of amphora as well. So we still has as uh, a nice fruity and uh, f- fruit-driven really structure, but also a layer of oak complexity to it. That's the two wines we produce at the moment. And uh, now we are actually uh, trying new things and adapting a little bit. Uh, so this year, I mean, sorry, last year, I did a little bit of Petit Naturel, Petnat, uh, some uh, some rosé Petnat, basically. Uh, I did some Blanc de Noir as well. So uh, making white wine with red grapes, uh, I think, uh, we need to try things, and last year was perfect for that. 2021, if you recall, uh, was very wet everywhere. <laughs> it was a pretty bad year for holidays, um, but only for also for farmers. So we had very low degree of alcohol, quite high acidity, and uh, we harvested middle of October here. And we kind of had to harvest because it was a lot of uh, mildew and a lot of botrytis as well, botrytis. Uh, everywhere on our reds so normally you don't really want botrytis on the reds uh, so i decided to harvest uh, when it was time anyway and you ended you ended up having wine with quite high acidity uh, quite low alcohol level and uh, a lot of freshness fruitiness like beautiful wines but clearly not really linked to uh, the border region so i thought i would try a couple of experiments that's why i make the petit naturel and the blanc de noir and uh, yeah they're tasting beautifully now I'm quite yeah. happy with that. Exciting. I saw the pictures of your pet gnat uh, on Instagram, and uh, it's an amazing colour for a start. It uh, looks very, very inviting. Have you actually managed to taste it yet, or is it much too early for that? No, it's uh, it's ready, actually, and it's going to be very soon <laughs> ready for sale. I only made about 700 bottles, because Petit Naturel, it's uh, very hard, a lot of hard work, basically. 
especially if you do everything by hand, uh, which like I did anyway. It tastes beautifully. Uh, I left it on the leaves for about four months and then disgorge it manually, take it off the yeast manually uh, by opening the bottle, each every single bottle, and put it back the capsule in it. And then they let it age for another year, basically. So now it's ready to sell. Uh, it has, uh, I think it's kind of a nice hybrid. Uh, it has a lot of fruitiness, a lot of juiciness, and you still get a good yeast flavor as well, uh, like an autolysis. You could link it to champagne or more of a traditional method uh, to it as well. So I'm really mm. happy with um, the try. Yeah, sounds delicious. Uh, final question then. What do you see as the future for Bordeaux? More adaptation and innovation, I guess. Adaptation, innovation, clearly, uh, are going to be the tools, I think, to reveal the terroir. Often, uh, Bordeaux, because I, I think we, uh, we've been the first, like you mentioned, you're the first producing fine wines for a long time in the world and very well known for that. And we have, the, we are lucky to have a, such a reputation. But it also means that when you're number one in the fine wine region, it's, it's also challenging and you have other challenges and it's, it's, it's never easy to last that long. So I think we, as the innovation and the adaptation, we'll be able to reveal the terroir that we have. Uh, so many in terroir, so much complexity and so many individuality, uh, which kind of goes against, let's say, the overall border picture because it's uh, so complex that you have many, many different small people making beautiful wines. And that's what's going to be the future, I think, of Bordeaux. Great. Well, that's a very good place to leave it. Um, Quentin, good luck with the uh, winemaking and with the pet nat uh, and selling that. Uh, I'm sure it'll go very rapidly. And thank you, very uh, thank you very much for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Thanks a lot, David. No problem at all. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Blending is an integral part of Bordeaux winemaking. Uh, Bordeaux is really the, the cradle of uh, blends that have uh, travelled the earth and uh, uh, conquered the rest of the wine world. Think uh, Cabernet Merlot, uh, Semillon Sauvignon. Uh, so today I'm at a Bordeaux wines uh, blending workshop to explore uh, the concept of blending and also um, have a go at making my own blend. Uh, I'm very much not a winemaker. I've never made a bottle of wine in my life. So that's going to be quite interesting. Uh, We're under the watchful eye of someone who's made very, very many bottles of wine over the years, Mathieu Huguet. And he's going to be keeping an eye on us and uh, giving us the benefit of his uh, uh, wisdom as I uh, make uh, the inaugural bottle of Chateau Kermode, uh, which um, I think we're probably going to expect to rush on the international markets for this when it's released. But anyway, let's uh, let's not uh, run before we can walk. So Mathieu, um, let's find out a bit more about blending. First of all, uh, why is it so important uh, in winemaking? Uh, it's because it's a way for uh, for us, especially in Bordeaux, to uh, to highlight uh, all the characteristics of the different grape varieties, and uh, also at the same time uh, highlighting uh, all the specificities of the vintage and of the terroir, the soil. I mean the soil, of course, mm-hmm. um, because you have to know that uh, in a state in Bordeaux, the soil are not uh, homogeneous at all. So we, uh, with uh, empirism, we uh, we know how to plant, uh, where to plant uh, Merlot, where to plant Cabernet Sauvignon to express at maximum all the characteristics of the different soil which are uh, making the the, the the estate. So at the end, uh, at the end, we 
we really want to um, to, uh, to 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 blend those uh, different uh, parts to, to together, mm. and uh, we um, we we do that uh, like a painter. Uh, we we mix uh, the different colors we we have on the on the glass on the table and uh, uh, avec, with the objective to um, to obtain the perfect color. Uh, mm. In fact, you said something really interesting earlier on. Um, when you were briefing us, um, that in blending one plus one equals three. What do you mean? Yes, yeah, so um, um, I'm saying that uh, with this formula that, uh, uh, in fact, the, um, the blending is not uh, is, is not so simple. Uh, uh, it's not a question of addition. It's a question of synergy. And uh, at the end, the the aim of uh, the goal of the the blending is to uh, to uh, to obtain uh, a blend which is better than uh, the the best part of the of, of the blend. Uh, so the wall um, must be uh, greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, it's a great expression, greater than the sum of its parts, and that's uh, certainly true of the uh, Bordeaux blends that I can uh, I can think about. Um, you also said something interesting um, that um, we're so used to being judging things by the nose in wine, but in blending terms, you shouldn't be led by the nose. Right, right. Uh, because it's so um, complicated if we drive the the blending session only by uh, by the nose. It's uh, uh, very complicated to anticipate how the, the nose will will evolve. In a, is it uh, does it will evolve in a in a correct sense or in a bad sense? That uh, is it is it will uh, expressing a flower or fruits. We, we, we don't know actually so uh, we pay more attention to the to the palate and the quality of the tannins mm. and we're working with uh, four of the um, approved Bordeaux red grape varieties there are clearly more but we're working with four today and we're working with the most famous so we're working with Merlot we're working with Cabernet Sauvignon uh, we're working with Cabernet Franc and we're also working with Carmen Air, which is less well-known uh, in, in Bordeaux terms. Um, tell us what those four grape varieties, uh, what they would bring to a blend. So all those grape varieties uh, have their own uh, specificities and uh, they are here and we have selected them to, uh, to uh, purely uh, uh, express the, 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 the soil, uh, the climate uh, which is uh, surrounding the parcel. So uh, for, for instance, Mer Merlot is uh, very well adapted uh, onto a clay and limestone soil. In comparison, it's... Uh, um, better to uh, to implant Cabernet Sauvignon on the gravel soil which is very drainy and not fresh uh, compared to a uh, to clay in limestone soil so really really want to uh, to adapt and then uh, we can appreciate that the result uh, in fact is not uh, is not the same so uh, if we speak about Merlot we speak about uh, roundness we speak about uh, um, uh, suppleness too um, and it's very uh, expressive demonstrative in a sense uh, and in comparison um, I say that uh, the Cabernet Sauvignon is, uh, is the backbone of uh, the blend uh, because it, it gives a uh, uh, powerful and also uh, it gives in the same time finesse and tannins too. Mm. What about Cabernet Franc? Because um, that's my favourite grape variety, I think. Um, but earlier on you said uh, when you were briefing us that Cabernet Sauvignon, which is one of my favourite grape varieties, um, uh, is not necessarily a friend of Cabernet Franc. Yes, correct. With the Cabernet Franc, uh, I like Cabernet Franc too, uh, because it's a good mediator between uh, um, with with Merlot and it 
it's a way uh, to uh, to um, to to give more personality to the to the merlot because of the climate change uh, merlot is a, a little bit flabby uh, in a sense so uh, uh, with cabernet franc it's possible for for us to uh, to give freshness and personality to the to this merlot uh, which is uh, less and less uh, acidic and uh, maybe uh, less delicate so uh, we pay more and more attention to the to the cabernet franc and uh, yes i mentioned that uh, cabernet sauvignon and cabernet franc are not uh, good friends uh, at all um, i don't know why exactly but uh, uh, if you match uh, cabernet sauvignon and cabernet franc cabernet franc is uh, sometimes is a little bit uh, uh, li liquid uh, so uh, it will it will reinforces the the, the flows of the Cabernet Sauvignon, in, in a sense. Mm. So it's not matching very well. Yeah, interesting. And just finally, Carmen Air. We're using that today. I'd go as far as to say that's one of my least favourite grape varieties. Mm. So why are we using that? So we use we use that as a salt and pepper. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a way to, uh, uh, to, to, to enhance uh, the the, the to give personality to the final blend, in fact. So uh, that's very hard to, uh, to find the perfect tune uh, when we speak about um, auxiliar grape varieties like Carmener or Petit Verdot or, uh, or Mal Malbec. So we, uh, we make a lot of trials to uh, really find the, the right percentage. And if we get it, uh, it's just fantastic, mm. speaking uh, uh, if we speak about a bl blending emotion. Okay, well, I shall bear that in mind. I'll give Carmenera uh, a fair hearing and uh, use it as a seasoning. Um, yeah. yeah, the salt and pepper you were talking about. So um, I'd like you to stick around if that's all right, Mathieu, because I'm going to have a go and then you're going to give me uh, your verdict, um, an honest verdict on what you think of what I've come up with, along with uh, Abby uh, Bennington, who's uh, here as well, who's a, a certified uh, Bordeaux educator. So uh, stick around and let's see what I come up with with uh, my first Chateau Kermode. Okay, so here we go. I have uh, four uh, glasses in front of me, um, four jugs with different red wines in them and uh, a terrifyingly enormous pipette uh, in front of me as well. And I'm going to taste these... Uh, wines first. Uh, we have a, a Merlot first and foremost, so famously from the uh, right bank primarily, and aromatic, fruity, it's kind of earthy note here as well, but very strident kind of prune, plum, yeah, red cherry note as well, and mm, that's definitely Merlot, real sort of signature there. Uh, these are all um, completed wines uh, rather than uh, samples from a, uh, a barrel that we're dealing with here just because it's easier to get completed monovarietal wines over here to the UK. So that's the first one, Merlot. The second is uh, Cabernet Franc, one of my favourite grape varieties. This is uh, gently spicy, kind of slightly earthy. There's some lovely floral notes there as well, which is one of the hallmarks of Cabernet Franc. And Perhaps a little vegetal note there as well, like um, a, a tin of beans or something like that. But um, very pretty and really quite delicate, quite um, kind of a light frame for Cabernet Franc. Uh, the third, some would argue the king of Bordeaux, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, this um, left bank's signature grape variety. And this is uh, quite ripe, actually, black currant, 
slightly leafy, black cherry, it's a kind of granite kind of note to the nose, maybe stony kind of character. And on the palate, yeah, you've got this ripe fruit, quite assertive um, tannic structure there. Really, again, signature Cabernet Sauvignon. And then um, finally, we have Carmen Air, uh, which is uh, uh, an old grape that's made a comeback. Um, most famous most recently uh, in Chile, of course. And it's been introduced by Mathieu as uh, a grape variety that um, is the salt and pepper, effectively the seasoning of any blend. And quite vegetal on the nose. Some uh, dark fruit there, dark berry fruit, um, quite muscular and quite assertive. And I think uh, in my blend, this is going to take um, a very small role, very much a supporting role, if any role at all. I may, of course, decide not to use it. But um, yes, seasoning uh, potentially. So we have four uh, different uh, made wines, all representing these four different varieties. And I'm going to blend them together to uh, produce... Uh, my uh, knockout blend. So that's the next stage. Right, so I have now completed my winning blend and uh, I kind of surprised myself actually because um, I didn't expect to use as much Merlot and I may be expected to use more Cabernet Franc. Uh, but earlier on, uh, we've got Cabernet Sauvignon in here as well. And earlier on, Mathieu warned us that uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc um, are cousins, but not necessarily friends. And that made me think rather. And actually, as I've played with this particular blend, I've, I've really surprised myself by favouring a greater uh, level of Merlot uh, than I was necessarily expecting. So in the end, my blend is 50% Merlot, at 35% Cabernet Sauvignon, at 10% Cabernet Franc. I think I expected to use a little more than that, but uh, it's there for hopefully the um, freshness. And also 5% Carmen Air. And at the beginning, I did wonder if I'd use Carmen Air at all, but my experiments um, did suggest that actually, uh, just as Mathieu said, salt and pepper as seasoning, it was a really um, useful. Uh, blending partner. Um, so I'm uh, very happy with my uh, finished bottle here, Chateau Kermode. We'll see uh, very shortly uh, what the experts make of my blending skills. Okay, so it's the um, it's the judgment of Fitzrovia uh, because I have my uh, completed uh, blend. Um, I uh, as I was explaining just now, I ended up using more uh, Merlot than I thought I was going to do, um, just based on my uh, trials, which I was quite surprised by. Um, I thought I might go a bit Cabernet Sauvignon dominant, but I didn't in the end. I went 50% uh, uh, Merlot, uh, 35 Cabernet Sauvignon, 10 Cabernet Franc, bearing in mind what you were saying earlier, Mathieu, about uh, the Cabernet relationship there. And um, to my own surprise, I ended up uh, putting 5% um, seasoning in there with the Carmen Air. I wasn't sure I was going to, but I did. So I'm going to pour you each a little glass of this uh, to see what you think. So I have Mathieu here with me and I have uh, Abby, a uh, certified uh, Bordeaux educator. And 
I've asked them to be completely honest and not be at all polite. Um, well, maybe slightly polite, but um, uh, have a, a, a sniff and a, a taste and see what you think of the uh, inaugural um, Chateau Kermode. Uh, so here we go. Cheers, thank you. So, yeah, well, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, um, I'm not going to give my own tasting note um, quite yet. Reasonably happy with this. Uh, but then it's not about what I think, really. It's about what our experts uh, think here. So, uh, first of all, um, uh, Mathieu, what do you make of what I've come up with? Um, I'm surprised and happy that uh, you, uh, you learn very fast uh, in terms of uh, blend. Um, because I have the sensation that uh, as, um, your blend is already... Um, uh, very um, uh, link, linked uh, to, to, to together, and um, I I feel the, the the part of the merlot which is uh, a little bit grainy and uh, not aggressive at all, and um, or I also feel some uh, freshness which is so important in uh, Bordeaux blend. Congrats! Oh David. wow! All right. Well, thank you very much. This this man has not been paid to say this, by the way. I honestly did say Abby can uh, can uh, can. Uh, pay testimony to this that I asked you to be honest. So, Abby, what do you reckon? You don't have to be polite either. I, I don't have to be polite, but I will be because it deserves to be polite. I couldn't agree more with Mathieu. I'd like to find fault with it, but I can't. This is absolutely packed with those black and uh, black rich fruits. Really elegant. And I love the little blueberries coming through from that Merlot. It's really lovely. And that little backbone of uh, tannins that you have, nicely judged. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, when I was saying to you, I was surprised by how, how much Merlot I'd used. Um, you didn't look very surprised at all. Um, you're obviously uh, very familiar with these uh, uh, Bordeaux wines. So um, Merlot um, gets a, a, a kind of tough time sometimes as a, a, as a grape variety. Um, but actually, in the blend, it, it really is a massively useful ingredient isn't it i think it comes into its own in a blend and i think that's what's it's a much maligned grape variety when it's a single varietal but when it works in harmony with these other varieties i think it really does sing and it and it's done in this glass so thank you well thank you well that was a really fascinating experiment that is the first time i've ever blended a red wine i've done it once with white and um well maybe maybe chateau kermode is gonna take the world by storm let's let's see but um abby uh, Mathieu, thank you very much indeed the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to the drinking hour with david kermode in association with the international wine and spirit competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world now, never mind my own efforts at winemaking, because it's time to round off with some genuine medal winners from the IWSC 2022 judging process. And today our focus is, of course, on the wines of Bordeaux. Let's kick off with a gold medal winner from right down in the south of the Bordeaux region, a sweet golden sauterne. Marks and Spencer, Lourdes du Siron, 2018 in the category of 81 to 120 grams per litre of residual sugar. These wines are all about freshness and balance. Uh, John Hoskins, MW, was overseeing the judging, ratifying these gold medals. Here's what the judging panel had to say. An attractive and complex nose of dried pineapple, baked apple, golden sultanas, complemented by stone fruit, butterscotch and honeyed spices on the palate. A classic example of Sauterne with well-integrated oak. Sounds delicious. 
Well, here's a famous name, Baron Felipe de Rothschild, reserve Mouton Cadet, Margot, 2020. Uh, this was a silver medal winner. Uh, it's majority Cabernet Sauvignon with 24% Merlot and 5% Petit Verdo. And here's the tasting note, an elegant and delicate wine with lifted floral, minty and blackberry compote aromas, refreshing acidity and a velvety texture. A classy wine, they said. There's a real push for rosé in Bordeaux right now. That style of wine sells so well. Here's a silver medal winning rosé from the region. André Lerton, Diane by Jacques Lerton, 2021. It won 91 points, getting it a silver medal. A blend of 48% Merlot, 44% Cabernet Sauvignon. The remainder, a white grape, Semillon. Uh, playing the role, I suppose, that uh, Roll does um, down in Provence. Uh, The panel said this, wonderfully elegant with floral aromatics and toasty white peach notes, leading to a complex layered palette of summer fruits, a touch of spice and wonderfully fresh acidity. Next, a wine that featured when I joined uh, Brad Horn to talk supermarket wines on his Instagram live. Uh, Chateau Moulinet Pomerol 2016 from Aldi, part of their classic icons range. I just looked this up and it's uh, $14.99 on promo. Uh, the regular price is $17.99 if you miss that promo. Not bad at all for a silver medal winning Pomerol. Uh, This is majority Merlot, of course. Uh, The judges said a delicate wine with lively red cherries, brambles and violet, balanced by earthy graphite, truffle and leather aromas with a long, warm finish. Sticking with the uh, discounters, here's one from Lidl that also scooped a silver medal. Their Saint-Emilion Grand Cru 2019 won 90 points. The tasting note, an elegant, ripe, dark fruit-driven wine with Vanilla, licorice, sweet spice and toast flavours, as well as supple and well-integrated tannins. Uh, I think this also retails around the £15 price point the last time I looked, proving if we needed evidence that there is value to be had from Bordeaux. And that's it for this special edition of The Drinking Hour brought to you with Wines of Bordeaux. Do join us again next time when our focus will be on the delicious and, in my humble opinion, criminally underrated white wines of Bordeaux. That's next time. Until then, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.